Welcome to the AGD podcast series. I'm Dr. Wes Blakesley. I'll be your host. Today, we welcome back microbiologist, Dr. John Molinari to bring us up to date with the COVID-19 virus and the new Delta strain that's wreaking havoc across the country. Has this affected your practice? I'm in the Northeast and it's blowing holes in my schedule on a daily basis. John, good morning. It's so good to have you back with us. Good morning, Wes. Good to see you again. So this is a very, very timely time for a podcast on the coronavirus, the Delta strain, and the things that are going on in the country. Uh, before we take a deep dive into some of the details, uh, let's look back over our shoulder uh, about vaccines and, and the historical impact they've had on the health of the population. I think that's a good place to start. I was talking with my business manager this morning. Uh, I'm soon to be 70, he's 72. And we talked a lot about poliovirus and all the things we went through back in the 50s and the fear our parents had and you know, and, and the whole thing that was connected with that. So let's take a look over our shoulder and talk about uh, the health of the population, vaccines and viruses. That, that's a great place to start, Wes. Uh, there isn't any doubt that uh, vaccines have had an incredible impact on public health. Uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, CDC uh, uh, labeled vaccinations as uh, one of the major, if not the major public health achievement of the 20th century uh, because of all the success that we've had in uh, really reducing the impact of vaccine preventable diseases. You mentioned polio. Uh, I went to grammar school with a couple of kids who had survived polio uh, with the withered leg, et cetera. And you can remember that. My parents and my friend's parents were ecstatic when the polio vaccine came out in 54 and we got and it came, became available in 55. Um, I typically start when I'm discussing vaccines at a lecture or something, especially with students, uh, young students. I said, some of you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the success of vaccinations from our parents and grandparents. People don't realize that, that measles, uh, polio, of course, uh, smallpox, <laughs> which we haven't had, of course, thank God, for so many years, uh, kill a number of people. And we don't see vaccine preventable diseases. Uh, we've eliminated smallpox. Polio, hopefully, is next on the list. One of the problems with that, though, is you have a lot of people today who've never seen vaccine preventable diseases. And so they think that these things are gone, or they think that vaccines for some of these things may not be as useful, but they haven't had the uh, experience that you and I have had, for example. So John, let's discuss uh, ideal vaccine properties, uh, required standards for testing, and also the follow-up after uh, the vaccine is released. Okay, that's an another good point. Um, <clears throat> the first and foremost aspect of vaccinations and vaccines in the development is safety is the overriding concern. The vaccine that is ultimately gonna be approved and released for the population or segments of the population has to have that absolute criterion, has to be as safe as possible. Uh, a general thing that I've heard over the years and, and use is that the uh, benefits must greatly outweigh any potential risks or adverse effects that can happen from the vaccine. And of course, we've seen this with, with COVID too, uh, where when they come out with the, uh, some cases of myocarditis, then they look at that in the uh, context of the general population, uh, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. 
but safety is absolutely paramount. Uh, you have to have a vaccine that's going to be antigenic, that's going to stimulate a protective immune response. You would love to have a vaccine that could be administered in one dose. <laughs> that way you don't have to have people come back. Uh, <clears throat> this was one of the things with the hepatitis B vaccine that you, you recall. It took three doses and we had people who didn't come back for the third dose because it was six months. So you don't get the level of immunity. Um, a bottom line also, because we have so many more immune compromised people in the population now, um, you would love a vaccine that is gonna be administered to immune competent and immune compromised persons so that you hit as large a segment of the susceptible population as possible to protect them. Um, and you don't want it to increase susceptibility to other diseases. With regard to your uh, standards <clears throat> that you talked about for uh, approval, for evaluation, this is something that um, the CDC, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the FDA have used for, for generations now. There are a series of steps, preclinical and clinical trial steps that all vaccines have to go through. Um, the first three, for example, are preclinical, you know, laboratory studies. Does the proposed vaccine um, stimulate immune response in animals? What is the, um, what is the uh, length of immunity in the animals where they check for antibodies, for example? Uh, what are the adverse effects on the animals? Uh, are there neurological effects? Are there rashes or other things? You have to go through all this with, with dosages and preclinical stuff. Then you get into those clinical trials that we heard so much about. And each of the three series of clinical trials is increasingly larger groups of individuals. Uh, you remember the last group for COVID was I believe, uh, 34, 40,000 uh, 40, people in, in each test group. They're looking for efficacy, but they're also looking to see as you put this in people, uh, what kind of reactions, if any, do they have to the injections? And then they have to weigh that versus the benefits of the vaccine against the disease. All these things take extended periods of time before all that data is submitted by Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, whomever the company happens to be, to the uh, FDA, Advisory Committee on Immunization and Practices of the CDC. And then all that stuff is evaluated. Not all vaccines make it. They have to meet these very, very high standards. And one of the things that drives me crazy, I'm sure it drives you crazy because you've heard it too, is that there are people who say, well, they, they really rushed this. They didn't do any of the safety steps. They didn't do anything like this. That's, that's not true. They have to meet those high standards before they even get the first hurdle of the emergency use approval. And the last thing you asked me about, uh, I'll just go into very briefly, is uh, when you got the vaccine, when I got the vaccine, we, we, we were told about this app the uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS, and everybody got that information because as a follow-up, you can report adverse effects and they continue to look at the effect of the vaccine after it's released into hundreds of thousands, millions of individuals to see if there's something that they missed. Is, they, is there a higher incidence of some severe adverse reaction that's only picked up when you have 4 million people vaccinated. And that is evaluated also. So people don't just 
get the vaccine and that's the end of it. The government's out of the, out of the business. They, they continue to have to monitor these things. John, uh, I don't know. I don't want to hold your feet to the fire, but I have to ask no, this no. question. This Go is ahead. just uh, something oh, that's on my do. mind. I've had Pfizer. Uh, my daughter, who's a, a cardiac ICU nurse, uh, she had Moderna. Her husband's a physician. He did too. Uh, and my two adult children had J&J. &J. Is there, is there a, a higher degree of, of immunity from one versus the other, or is it not significant and not something to worry about? <clears throat> That's a good question. And you're not putting my feet to the fire because uh, it's okay. Um, Pfizer and Moderna, both were 94, 95% when they were first released. So they're both still very, very good. J&J uh, &J was less, first of all, it was a single dose, a little different type of vaccine than the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna is not a messenger RNA. Uh, it, it, it's a different type of uh, uh, vaccine. One of the things with J&J &J having a little lower efficacy is J&J uh, &J started doing their clinical testing later. And by that time, some of the variants were coming out. And they also did their, uh, some of their clinical trials in, in South Africa and other countries where these variants were appearing. And so the vaccine did not have the 90% or above that the other two had. Uh, it still works. It, it, it still works well. Um, and uh, when, when you look at the data now with, with Delta, uh, over 90% of the people that are being hospitalized are unvaccinated. So the vaccines, all, all three of them protect against hospitalization and clinical disease for the most part. Uh, as far as side effects are concerned, does one stand out versus another, or would you say that they're all pretty much on an even plane? I would think they're pretty much on even plane. I mean, they haven't seen uh, untoward numbers of very serious adverse effects. I mean, I've, I've heard people say, you know, that they got Pfizer and they, and they were really wiped out more and they had a lot of soreness and everything. Uh, I have family members who got Moderna like I did who had that. I didn't have much of anything as, as far as an adverse effect. I think sometimes it's just an individual response. You just don't know how your immune response and inflammatory response is going to react to some of those injections. But I mean, the benefits really are far greater. No, I think there's no question about that. Uh, just one sidebar question, John, again, uh, just trying to get into some of the details here. Sure. With a single J&J &J, uh, immunization, is it more likely then because it's a single immunization uh, even though it's a different mechanism that you might need a booster uh, shot, which we're going to talk about later, but I'm just, it's on the tip of my tongue right now. So I figured I'd just, you know, shoot it out there. I don't think there's any doubt that, that we need boosters. Uh, and we can get into that uh, with regard to RNA viruses and mutation and stuff like that if you want. Okay. Okay. All no, this is good. Uh, let's talk about herd immunity. I mean, that's you know hit the airwaves in the media big time over the last year. Uh, something that a lot of us, didn't pay much attention to, and now we are. Uh, why is it so important in uh, controlling these vaccine-preventable diseases? Well, the more people that you have that are protected, the less susceptible hosts you have for the virus to infect. And when it infects, it replicates, and it has a chance of mutating. And because this is an RNA virus, RNA viruses tend to mutate 
uh, more than some of the other viruses, some of the DNA viruses. It's, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, it's also a respiratory virus and respiratory viruses uh, can also mutate fairly readily. So you, the, the, the magic number that we had for a good part of our lives, Wes, was 70%. If you get 70% of the population, you have a large enough number of immunized people who would protect those who can't get vaccinated for whatever reason, you, you actually shield them from the people who are infectious that they could pass the disease to. That number is probably higher now with Delta. I've heard figures as high as 80%. And I don't know if, if and when that's gonna happen you know, with the, with the rate that we're going. But herd immunity is that the larger the herd, the lower the risk for microbes to infect susceptible hosts, mutate, become different strains or variants, and then be passed on to the rest of the population. So you want that large enough population. You, you, you mentioned polio and, and, and your manager. Um, if you remember, we all got it. I mean, there, was, there wasn't any question. It was a personal, it was a family responsibility, a public health responsibility. And we got vaccinated in such large numbers that we really reduced the incidence of polio dramatically in this country within a, a, a relatively short period of time. That's what herd immunity is. You really protect those who can't get immunized by vaccinating a large percentage of the population. John, what's the number that you uh, hear today about the percentage of Americans who've been vaccinated? Uh, I'm hearing a little bit more than 50%, maybe like it tops might be 51%, I think. I'm not 100% sure, but, it, but it's not much more than that. <clears throat> what, what do you, I mean, in your opinion, again, I'm and that's fully vaccinated. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, that's, that, that's fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated, okay. So I'm holding your feet to the fire again, but what, what sure. do you think just, you know, as a, a microbiologist citizen, that is the biggest barrier for people getting vaccinated? I, I just don't get it. You know, uh, if I was on video, you'd see all the gray hair that I have with this. Uh, this has been going on for years. I don't understand it. Um, I, I'm so tired of <clears throat> plots and conspiracy theories. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, one thing is, you know, um, well, I, I, I want to do all the research before anything goes into my body or my child's body or something like this. And what's happened is that there's, there's a lot of distrust. Uh, there's also so much coverage on some of this type of misinformation that the more you hear it, the more some people will tend to believe it. And really, there's a lot of information out there that, 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 that just blows me away. Um, it, it, it's difficult to explain. You have people who say that, well, you know, uh, they, they rushed it. And so right away, this is the problem. Uh, uh, we don't need it. Or, I've heard, and you've heard, that COVID really isn't as bad as the government's made it out to be, or we're making it out to be as healthcare workers. So it's, it, it's from A to Z. And to start going into this, we could spend another two hours. Easy. No, I appreciate your thoughts. I really do. I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, John, how can the new and emerging uh, viral strains and variants develop? And, and the second part of this question is, and how can they affect vaccine success? A two-part question. I, 
I mentioned this a little bit, but th thanks for asking it. As viruses replicate in a host, they can mutate, they can change. Um, uh, RNA viruses, as I said, don't have uh, just an even replication where one virus is identical to the, to the mother virus, you know, the daughter viruses, et cetera. And coronaviruses are RNA viruses. So the more that they replicate, the better the chance they have to mutate into something a little different. And with these viruses, every, everybody now in the world knows the words spike protein. What they're seeing, among other things, is that some of the proteins in the spike protein are changing, and that can affect the ability to infect host cells and also the ability of antibodies produced by the host to react with those spike proteins on the virus to prevent them from infecting. So for example, Delta has a number of amino acid changes in that spike protein, which now are rendering vaccine produced antibodies less effective in some individuals. And that is, a, is an issue because as long as the virus is continuing to be able to infect susceptible hosts, it can have a greater opportunity to mutate and become different variants. Now we have the Lambda variant that's out there that people are starting to talk about. And you know this, this is ongoing. They also mutate at different rates and coronaviruses mutate. Um, I guess I can't say that they're uh, more or less uh, rapidly than influenza. I, I think that the uh, replica, I, I think that they mutate less than influenza. That's why we need a new strain every year. But um, the point is that SARS-CoV-2, uh, I saw data a while ago that said that it's replicated. If there, are, there are greater than 12,000 mutations since the beginning of the pandemic. That, that blew me away. Now, most of those don't do a whole lot as far as infectivity or resistance to antibodies and you know, the immune response controls them. But that just shows the ability of these things to replicate. So when they do, <clears throat> you can have more rapid um, replication, reproduction, more viruses. And in something like Delta, where it produces many times more viruses than some of the other variants, you may not have a host that has enough antibodies to control all the virus that's coming in. And that's one of the reasons why you see some of these breakthrough infections. I mean, it's, it's complicated. I wish I understood it all. I'm not a molecular virologist, but you can see the clinical applications of it. Uh, and what we have is that the uh, natural immunity from COVID or the artificial active immunity from the vaccination may not be able to control some of these more rapidly replicating mutating strains to the same degree that it would have to the original strain, you know, the one that uh, first started the whole pandemic. Did that make sense? Yeah, it did. That's a great answer. I'm actually writing notes as you speak. Uh, <laughs> that's actually a very, very elegant answer. Thank you for that. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> no, this is great. This is how we learn. Uh, so how is the Delta variant adversely affecting previous COVID-19 vaccination success? Well, 
A, the, um, the, antigen, the antigen composition of the spike protein is not the same as like the Delta, the Alpha, and some of the other variants that we had before or the original strain. Um, it is more infectious than the original strain, which means that it can be transmitted uh, to a greater degree to susceptible hosts. Um, antibodies developed against the original strain vaccine uh, may not completely protect the host, A, because there could be more viruses produced, and B, the, uh, the specificity of the antibodies doesn't completely match. So there's not as much cross-reaction. Uh, this is why people who, uh, who have been vaccinated, who come down with uh, Delta, uh, it's, it's typically mild, of course, thank God. Uh, the vaccine is supposed to protect against hospitalization and disease, but people can be mildly infected. Not common, but it happens. And um, I'm trying to think what else I have to say on this one. The it can evade the immune response by uh, not being as responsive to the antibodies that you produced against the vaccine. It's not common, not common at all but it happens. John, I've read uh, some reports about younger children becoming infected. And my understanding was, was that their immune system was a little more robust and, and maybe more protective. Again, I'm not a, a microbiologist like you were a virologist, but is there any, any truth to that? Maybe you can comment on what you've read about infections in uh, younger children. Uh, and is that from the Delta variant? Do you know? I don't know. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that up front. What I've been seeing has, has, has caused me to be alarmed, especially with schools back in session. And we certainly want the kids back in school. There's no doubt about that. Uh, <clears throat> they're seeing a significant increase in childhood hospitalizations. Uh, I saw recent figures was like about a 300% increase in the last month or so, and possibly that's a little bit uh, longer or shorter. Um, I. I don't know why children were not as affected early on, but I think that the fact that they're seeing the numbers now suggests that Delta is playing a role in this. I haven't seen a breakdown. Uh, maybe it's there and I, and I just haven't seen it. But um, the fact that we're seeing it now and we're seeing this uh, well over 90% of the new cases are from Delta suggests that Delta is having more of an impact on these young kids than the previous strains. You know, not that Facebook is the, uh, you know, be all end all of, of things, right. but I do go on to, you know, see what's going on with my friends, especially, and I'm getting, you know, uh, reports from my friends that, you know, grandkids, you know, because we're all about 70 in, in my class group, uh, that the grandkids are getting sick with this. So it's very concerning. It is, it is concerning, you know, um, and of course, you see what happens is we've heard for so long on social media and and, and as, as well as from, as, as well as from um, uh, the literature that children were somehow more resistant to, the, to COVID, <clears throat> well, that's evolving as the virus is evolving. And that's where we have to keep up with that. I really can't wait for the approval for the vaccines for the young kids. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that comes very soon. Yeah, <clears throat> me too, me too. Uh, John, last, uh, well, next to last question, I guess. Uh, vaccine boosters, will we need them? And what are your thoughts about that? Yes. To me, there was 
to me, there was never any doubt that we were going to need a vaccine booster. Um, uh, not that I'm not smart by any stretch of the imagination. As I said, it's an RNA virus. And the, the more it's allowed to um, replicate, the better the chance for mutation. <clears throat> so you, 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 you want to stop it as cold as possible. Uh, but it, you're, you're never going to get to 100%. We, who knows when we're going to get to 80% or 70%. And so by giving boosters, you're going to produce more antibodies, which may have a wider range of cross-reaction to slow it down and then protect as much of the population as you possibly can. It's very possible, and I've heard uh, people talking on some of the webinars, and I've also seen some of the literature, where there's a real possibility, almost a probability, that this is going to be like an annual or every other year type of vaccine, much like the flu vaccine, because it's a respiratory virus, and these things can be transmissible so easily, person to person. Um, so I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to be uh, needing boosters. Of course, they've already recommended it for immune-compromised individuals. We'll be next, you know, those of us... Uh, uh, over 75 or 65, and then they'll go down the line. But um, to, to me, the, uh, the boosters were always going to be there. Yeah, that was my feeling too. But again, I'm not a, not a microbiologist. No. John, last question. I could go on for an hour, but <laughs> we don't have that much recording time, unfortunately. So I'm going to end with this. Uh, you know, COVID-19 uh, has become a highly politicized inf uh, <clears throat> infection. And uh, my, I was talking with my office manager this morning, and he said, if you're going to speak with uh, Dr. Molinari, ask him, where's the best place for all of us to gain information that isn't being skewed by politics? Well, this is not popular with some people who are against the vaccines, but the CDC really has the authority, the capability, the expertise to gather information, scientific expertise, research expertise, you get information from there. Obviously the World Health Organization on the global scale, but the CDC has so many different areas where they have publications and access to the literature that you can get good public health information from them. I have relied on the CDC my whole career for so many things and it's 52 years now. And unfortunately, the politics have gotten into that where people say it's a government agency, they're just trying to feed us this line, uh, and then somebody comes up with something else. But if you ask me, I'm, I'm saying the CDC. Well, I appreciate that and I respect your opinion. Uh, Thank you. John, this has been a very robust conversation, very interesting. <laughs> uh, you never know where these things end up. And I think we took some right turns and left turns. But I think we basically stayed on the line that's based on research and data. Uh, and uh, I went to graduate school before dental school, so I'm, I'm a data guy. Uh, and I think we did a very objective job in reviewing this. And I thank you on behalf, oh, my of, pleasure. on behalf of the Academy of General Dentistry. Now, I know that you lecture and do webinars and so on. So for the members uh, and groups listening in, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh <clears throat> I have my uh, I have my Gmail. If they have questions, it's um, it's John Molinari PhD at gmail.com. All right, that sounds great. So my very very last question is: 
John, can we do another one of these? <laughs> I would love to. I would love to do a webinar if I could, because then I could show you uh, specific uh, slides and stuff, or I could show them specific slides and, and, and actually spend some time developing some of these. I mean, it could be on vaccines or it could be on COVID. I mean, it could be on a number of things, uh, whatever the time frame you all have uh, to, to allow me to do it. It'd be my, my pleasure. All right, uh, sir, I will work on that. And uh, again, thanks. I really enjoyed this. Oh, me too, Wes. Good talking to you again. Same God here. Bless. Take care.